Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for this morning. And for these folks who are gathered here today, um, not because they were compelled, Lord, but because they want to come and they want to hear from you. So, Lord, I pray that this morning as we open up our Bibles, Lord, that you would speak to us. Father God, I pray that you have already begun to prepare us to hear what it is that you have for us today. Use me this morning, Lord, as your mouthpiece. Lord, help me not to get in the way. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. This, this last few chapters of Matthew here, you understand that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the very last time, and he knows it. You know, he knows this is the last time that he will go to Jerusalem. Well, it's not really, is it, when you think about it? Because he's going to come back, um, and he's going to reestablish this. But in this time, this is his last trip to Jerusalem. And he's on his way there. Well, we've seen over the last couple of weeks that he goes in, he cleanses the temple, the chief priests and the elders come to him and they challenge him and they want to know, like, by what authority is he doing these things? Like, why, why are these guys so upset? Well, not just because they're the religious leaders and they're trying to find out, is he really in some authority to do these things? But these are the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests are the ones who were actually running this corrupt marketplace. They were the ones who were financially gaining from this. And so all of a sudden they're feeling like their, their income is being threatened. And they were making a ton of money off the people. And they want to know, by what authority are you doing this? Now remember, Jesus says, rather than just tell you what authority, I'm going to ask you a question. And he says, John the Baptist, was his ministry from God or from men? And they kind of weighed that in their own, in their little group. And they said, well, if we say that he was from heaven, his message was from heaven, then, then, then Jesus is just going to turn around and say, well, why didn't you believe what he said? And what John said was, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we can't say that it was of heaven. But if we say that he was just of men, everybody here is going to be mad at us because they think John was a prophet. And well, we don't want to risk the crowd being mad at us because really the crowd is why we have the authority that we have. If there's no one to have authority over, then you don't have any authority. So they come back with the very brilliant response of, we don't know. Jesus then goes on in chapter 21 to tell a couple of parables, each one having to do with what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in each one of them, he, he basically says to these group of leaders, you're the bad guys in these stories. Now, it takes them a little while to catch on. Again, these are the spiritual giants of the time, and it takes them a little while to catch on that Jesus is actually talking about them in not such a great way until we get kind of to the end of that. And you see at the end of 21, it says that uh, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them, and they're like, wait a minute here. I think he's talking about us. And it says that they started looking for a way. They wanted to take him right there. But again, they were afraid of the crowd's reaction. Well, as they're sitting there thinking, 
oh, what should we do about this? I mean, we want to take him and kill him right now, but what if the crowd gets mad at us and we don't want to do that? Jesus says, and this is what you should know, there are no chapter breaks when Jesus is speaking, right? It just rolls right in. So Jesus answered them and spoke another parable. He goes, hey, listen, guys, while you're sitting there scratching your heads, wondering what to do, here's another parable for you, and you're going to love this one just as much. <laughs> It starts off like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. All right, so I'm going to just tell you right off the bat. Remember, this is a parable, so it's not a real wedding. It's a earthly symbolic thing that has a heavenly reality. And so this parable is about God having a huge celebration for his son, who is Jesus, and calling out to those who were invited, which were the Jews, okay? So I'm just going to like pull the curtain away right from the beginning. So you know exactly what he's talking about. It says that, that the king was going to set up a marriage for his son, and he said to the servants, go out and call all those who were invited. And those who were, not invite, or were invited were not willing to come. The reason why this is such an effective parable in Jesus' time, especially even now, is that a marriage is a big deal. A wedding is a big deal. You know, when you get the invitation well in advance, you know when the date is, you know when it's time to come, and then, you know, you get to save the date. Usually it's like you get to save the date, and you look at your calendar like, okay, I guess I can go. <laughs> or, or no, you go like, yes, yay, weddings. And then you get the invitation later, and then you know when it's time to come. And on the date that it has been arranged, you go, and weddings are a big deal. There's a lot of festivity and, and dressing up and food, thankfully, uh, and dancing. They were a big deal then, too. And so he uses this as an example. There was a lot of culture around weddings at that time, which is going to be helpful for us to know here, too. But it says that he... He called forth and he said, I'm, I'm, the wedding is prepared, it's ready, come. And the way that he says it, um, that he, he sent out, he arranged for this wedding and he sent out, it was as if he was saying, look, I have put together something that's a big deal and I'm making you a very good offer to come. He was offering them his best opportunity and they said, we're not willing God said, I promised that I would send a savior, one who would come directly from me, that David himself would call Lord. And when he came, what you should have prized, you scoffed at and rejected my offer. But verse four says, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. I love that it says again, he was not willing to give up on them right here. He says, go and ask them again. Give them another chance to respond. I so love that, that God gives us more than one shot, more than one chance to accept that invitation. More than one. In fact, many. You know, we say God is the God of second chances, but really is the God of third chances and fourth chances and fifth and 10 and 12, 15 chances. And he lets them know. He sweetens the deal. He says, tell them that I see I have prepared my dinner, my ox and my fatted calf are killed. All things are 
ready. I wrote a note to myself, heaven is not a potluck. Heaven is not a potluck. He's prepared it all for us. In fact, we can't bring anything to contribute to heaven. But look what their response is. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. It says that on the receiving the second invitation, those who were invited made light of it. The phrase in Greek, made light of it, means they viewed it as if it were without significance. Why would they view an offer from the king as if it were without significance? The answer is in the verse, because they were satisfied with their own stuff, their farms and their businesses. See, they received an offer to to attend the wedding of a king for his son, and they got that twice. And they said, no, what we have going on is more important. It's better than what you are offering us. Remember, he's talking to the elders and the chief priests specifically. And he was saying, I sent, uh, actually, it's Jesus. He's saying, my father sent me as promised. And you looked at it and said, what we have going on here is better than what you're offering us. So we're going to stick with what we have. You know, people are still reacting this way to the gospel, making light of it, unaffected, viewing it as if it is without significance, looking at their lives and saying, I hear what you're saying, but what I've got, that's better. It might seem so, but it's so short and it's so shallow and it's so empty. I thought I had a good thing going on. I was not a rock bottom Christian convert. I had a good marriage. I had no kids. <laughs> At the time, was wonderful. <laughs> two jobs. I mean, I didn't have two jobs. We had two jobs, two incomes. Living outside of a major city. Living large. And it was so shallow and so empty. And that's what brought me to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because I kept thinking, there's something missing and I don't know what it is but I think those people have it. You know, they did have it. They had the word of God. They had the Holy Spirit. That's what I needed. I didn't need more stuff. I had plenty of stuff. I didn't need more friends. (laughs) I needed Jesus. Well, it says that they made light of it. They went their own way and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. See, it's not just that they went their own way. It wasn't just that they're like, no, no, again, no, thank you. Now they're getting angry because they've been asked a second time. And I think that they're feeling a little guilty. And so to overcome that, they say, you know what? Let's just kill the messengers because then the message will stop. And we know from the word of God that when God sent prophets to the people to share, look, all the way even up to John the Baptist, what did they do? John the Baptist had his head cut off because the king was sick and tired of him. Well, actually, his wife wanted him to shut up. And so Jesus says, messengers have come to you from God about me and you've killed them. 
Do you know that that isn't that different now either, is it? I mean, around the world, you can see that Christians are being killed because of what they believe, because they are unashamedly, unashamedly, unafraid to share the gospel, and they're killed. But you know, we don't so much get killed here, do we? But there are people who want you to shut up. We see it so often. We just went through a world, a, a, a pandemic in this country where they're like, you know what? It's okay for liquor stores and bars to be open, but not churches. Too many people. And if you go to church, don't sing because your, your, your spit will come out onto the other people and infect them. And it will spread to all the people going to liquor stores and bars. <laughs> and they wanted us to keep our mouths closed. Jesus says that's going to happen. It's going to happen going to happen. But that doesn't mean we stop, does it? In fact, we can't stop. We cannot stop sharing the gospel. Verse 7 says, but when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. Remember, this is a parable that Jesus is telling them, but now he goes a little bit prophetic in this sense, where he says that when his son is rejected or the invitation has been rejected. The king was so upset that he sent his armies to destroy their cities. And Jesus here is speaking prophetically about what is going to come in about 40 years from this time. The Roman army will come in and burn down the city of Jerusalem and the temple so much so that all the gold that plates all the walls melts down into the stones and the Roman army comes through, turns over every stone to get at the gold, which was also prophesied that every stone would be overturned. And Jesus says, he warns them, this is what is going to happen. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Do you know that is a very interesting word, not worthy? It actually means weighed. He says that those who were invited were weighed and found to be lacking. That's that phrase when he says they're not worthy. They were weighed and found to be Lacking. Now, this is actually, when he says that, that should have sounded familiar to them in their heads, being Jews, especially being chief priests and elders, that should have struck something in their mind. Does it remind you of anything? Because when I read it, I was like, oh, that's exactly this. In Daniel, that's right. In Daniel chapter five, there's a story where there's a king, the son of Nebuchadnezzar named Belshazzar, Belshazzar, <laughs> whatever. He's having a feast at his palace for a thousand people, and they're all drinking and having a blast. And then he says, you know what we should do? We should go into the storeroom and get all the golden vessels that my father took from the Jews out of their temple and bring them in here and let's drink wine out of them. And so they go in and they get all the golden vessels and they bring them out and they're all drink. They're pouring it here. You have some, you have some, and they're drinking. And they're, they're, it actually says right here, and they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone with the vessels from the Jewish temple that were consecrated to God, they worshiped idols with them. It says in that same hour, a hand appeared in the corner of the room and started writing a message, just a hand, <laughs> writing a message on the wall. And they freaked out, which of course you would if all of a sudden a big hand appeared just like, 
carved a message in the wall. And so the king, once the message goes up, the king, he calls out to all his wise men in the land and he says, I need someone to come and read this and interpret it to me. And anyone who can do that, I will put a purple robe on them and a gold chain around their neck and they will be in charge of a third of the kingdom. And so they all came and they all looked at it and they're like, hmm, I got nothing. They couldn't read it and they couldn't interpret it. So then the king's wife says, you know, there's a guy here in your kingdom who I've heard hears from God and can probably interpret this. And so they sent for Daniel. Now Daniel's pretty old at this point and pretty much is just done with it all. Do you know what I mean? You'll see in a second. So they bring Daniel and he's like, Daniel, we hear that you hear from God and you could probably interpret this. If you can interpret this, I'll give you a purple robe and I'll give you a gold necklace and I'll make you a third in the kingdom. And you know what Daniel says? Keep it. Give it to somebody else. He's so over it. But he says, but I will tell you what this says. So he looks at it and he says, what this says right here is it says, mene, mene, tekel, you parson. You got it? (laughs) Essentially, this is what it means. This is out of, of chapter five, verse 27. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Daniel says to them, you have been weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom has been delivered and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night they were destroyed. He says, you have been weighed and found wanting. In this parable, Jesus says that those who were invited, you Jews who were invited first, were weighed and found wanting. And now this kingdom is going to be extended to the Gentiles, as we're going to see. He says, go out. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. The word invite there is call. As many as you find, call them to attend. And it says that those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all who they found, both bad and good, And the wedding hall was filled with guests. The servants go out into the highways and the byways and they call all bad and good. It's very interesting detail that Jesus puts into this parable. He invited all the bad and the good. The word bad in in Greek right there means um, miserable. Um, Everyone who was miserable. (laughs) That sounds like it great party, right? You bring in all the miserable people. And the good, it just means good. It isn't like in the simplest terms, good meaning that they were doing well. So what do you've got? You've got Jesus calling to all, whether they were miserable on this end or doing well on this end, and basically everybody in between. And the invitation goes out to all. You don't have to be at rock bottom in order to come to Jesus. You don't have to be doing amazingly well to come to Jesus. But both of those people are called and both of those people respond. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe you're just doing fine. No real struggles. Guess what? Come to Jesus. Do you have some good days and some bad days? Guess what? Come to Jesus. The other really important thing to realize all of a sudden that the invitation was now based on grace. The invitation to attend the wedding was based on grace, not on their merits. It had nothing to do with what they had done or not done. 
They says they called the good and the bad and everybody in between. This was an invitation of grace. Remember, this is a parable that Jesus is talking about. Those who are invited to the wedding feast that is to come. It doesn't matter if you're good or you're bad or anywhere in between. It is an invitation extended by grace that you can all accept. He says, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Remember, this is a parable, and Jesus is talking about what is to come. The wedding hall will be filled just as the king wanted. You see, the king wanted it to be filled, which is why he kept extending the offer to attend time and time again. He wants it to be filled. It says in 2 Peter that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he desires that all men come to repentance. That means that he wants heaven to be filled Jesus would say in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. He wants us there. Now the king came in and he, to see the guests and he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? It's like, here's a guy, he gets invited, he comes just out on the highway. Hey, the king's having a wedding feast. You're invited. Great. So he goes to the wedding feast in whatever he has on, you know, and he sits down at the wedding and the king comes over and says, why, why are you here in these garments? And the man doesn't, can't, says he's speechless. And so the king says, bind him up and throw him out. Well, that doesn't sound very godlike, does it? Okay, so let me explain. At this time, especially a king, when he threw a wedding feast, would hand out to each attendant a wedding garment. It was a very simple kind of linen robe. And the purpose was so that everybody's class was kind of done away with. It didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. Everyone appeared on the same level so everyone could mix and mingle equally. But this man rejected the wedding garment and came in in his own clothes. And sat down thinking, I don't need the garment that you're offering me. I'm going to come in and what I have, what I have is good enough. And he sat down. Now it says that when the king came over to him and asked him, "Um, how is it that you've come in? Actually, the phrase is, what are you doing here without the wedding garment? And when it says the man was speechless, it actually says in Greek that he was put to silence. You know what that means? He was put to silence. That means that he made excuses or gave reasons why but that he was put to silence, meaning there is no reason that you can give me that is valid for coming to this wedding feast in your own clothes, but that you must be robed with the garment that I provided. The man desired the honor of attending the wedding feast, but wanted to do it his own way. You understand that in this parable, the garment that is provided by the king is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. 
When we accept the invitation, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we are clothed with his righteousness. You understand, sin qualified us from heaven because heaven is a place of perfection where there is no sin. And since we can't do away with our own sin, we can't wash ourselves clean, we are not welcome there unless we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the robe in this parable. In fact, in Isaiah 64, 6, it says that our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. Our righteousness, which means the best we have to offer, is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if we accept his forgiveness, we are given the robe of Jesus Christ's righteousness so that we are able to sit in on the marriage supper that's to come. But if you are someone who says, I don't need that robe. I don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What I have should be good enough. There will come a time when the Lord will, will, you will stand before the Lord and he will say, why are you here without the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Oh, well, you know, um, I, I'm pretty good. Look what I've got. And he'll say, those are filthy rags. You're coming into my wedding feast in filthy rags when I offered you a robe of righteousness that you rejected. And they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How about we just take all of my good and we'll put it on the scale and then we'll take all of my, well, not good because no one ever wants to say they're bad, right? I don't want to put my bad on. They'll say, let me take my not good and put it on this side of the scale and then we'll see how it comes out. You know what they'll hear? Mene, mene, tekal, you parson. You have been weighed and found lacking. That sounds harsh that, Jesus, that God would say you're going to be bound and cast into outer darkness where there is weeping of gnashing of teeth. Do you know what that means? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about the ultimate destination of hell. Weeping means, in that phrase, that there will be unending emotional despair. Gnashing of teeth says that there will also be unending extraordinary physical pain in outer darkness alone. Whatever you've imagined hell to be, it's not that if it isn't what he says it is here. Complete outer darkness, emotional despair, unending, and physical pain beyond what you can even think. And that's what's waiting for those who say, I don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to go to the wedding feast. I will sit in my own clothes and it will be just fine. And he says, you will be weighed and you will be found short and you will be cast out. You don't have, that doesn't have to happen. If you're here breathing today, that does not have to be your destiny. The invitation has been extended to you you simply accept it and say, Lord, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I accept your forgiveness of my sin that you've already accomplished. Verse 14 says, many are called, but few are chosen. It is connected, you've got to remember, to this parable. So what that is saying is that 
Many are called to the feast, but only those who choose to accept the garment are chosen to partake of the feast. Do you understand? Verse 15 says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his walk. Because they kind of walk away at this point. And that's probably smart because, again, another parable hurled at them. But it's more of a warning to them, isn't it? It's not, it's too late for you, elders and chief priests. He's saying, you still have a chance to accept the invitation that the king is offering you, but it is only through the accepting of the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is actually telling them this parable. Then in verse 16, it says, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. All right, so they're like, all right, he knows who we are. Let's send somebody who he doesn't know. Let's send some disciples along with the Herodians to see if we can trick him somehow saying, teacher, look at what they say. We know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Boy, oh boy, are they laying it on thick. Oh, you, we know you're so great and everything that you say is true, right? And all, you always tell the truth, right? You know what they're doing there? First of all, they're flattering. Secondly, they're laying a trap because they're thinking, oh, no, if he says, yes, everything I say is true. And then they ask him a question that they think will maybe divide the crowd. And then they've got him. And they're using flattery. You're so great. We know that you're from God. We know that you always tell the truth. Do you know that Jesus is not fooled? He's going to catch them in a minute. But in, do you know that in, in Proverbs 29.5, it says that uh, um, a man who uses flattery is like one who sets a net for the feet of his neighbor. Flattery is a trap. If someone's coming up, just like, you're so great. You're so great. Just wait. There's something else coming. So he says, uh, tell us, therefore, what do you think? (laughs) Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that's a really important phrase. They say to pay taxes to Caesar or not. What they think is they're giving him only two options, a yes or a no. And they think, all right, now that's why they've got the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, who, by the way, hate each other, but not so much that they won't team up to try and take down Jesus because Jesus is a threat to all of them. And so these two groups that are normally at conflict with one another come together and they ask him this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? And this is what they think. If he says no not to pay taxes, then the Herodians are going to run back to the Romans because they were kind of fans of the taxes and the Romans. And they're going to be like, oh, there's a Jewish rabbi down here and he's telling people not to pay taxes to Rome. He's causing sedition. And that they would then come and they would arrest Jesus. And that would, uh, you know, and also divide the crowd because you've got some people who are on this side and some people who are on that side. But if he was to say, yes, pay your taxes, then you've got the, the, the other side that were with the Pharisees who would be upset because they viewed paying taxes to Rome as like supporting an oppressive government, uh, a pagan government. And so they were like, oh, we got him. He's got to say yes or no, right? Well, he's got to go one way or the other. So no matter which way he goes, we are going to, they're, they're thinking, we're brilliant. We've got Jesus. But... Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? At this point, I think they're going, what? He's onto us? How could that be? 
Show me the tax money, he says. So they brought to him a denarius. It's a coin. It's a Roman coin. They would use this Roman coin to pay their taxes. By the way, this is talking about most likely the poll tax, which everybody paid one denarius a year from the age of 12 all the way to 65 years old, and there was not, no negotiating it. It says, um, so they brought to him a denarius, and he said, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So he doesn't give them a yes or no. He says, let me see the coin. Whose image is stamped on this coin? And they say, well, of course, that's Caesar's image. So he says, then give it back to Caesar. But see, he's saying more than that. The word image in Greek is icon. Okay? It literally means like the image of. So what Jesus says is the thing that has the image of Caesar render is give back. It was his to begin with. Give it back to him. But the things of God to God. And it's very interesting because the implication is this. He's saying the things that bear the image of the world give back to the world. But the things that bear the image of God give to God. So what are those things that bear the image of God? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians somewhere that we are the image bearers of Christ and that we reflect his glory. We are created in the image of God. The image of God is stamped on us. So really what Jesus is saying to them is give back to the world all the world's stuff. Give your life to God. That's what his answer is to pay taxes. Do we pay taxes? Give whatever is the world the world's, but give your life to God because his image is on you and you reflect his glory. When they heard these words, they marveled and left and went on their way. It's like they're like, oh, drats. We thought we had him on that one. Now, what I don't think they did is went back home and said, huh, let me think that through. Maybe I should turn my life over to God. That wasn't their intention, was it? They wanted to trick him. But see, I guess that's the question to us is like, are we prepared to say, this is the world's, but I'm God's. This, everything I have, I have. And it's okay to have stuff, right? But it can't be your God. It can't be your all-encompassing world. It's just the stuff you have. It's the car you have to get from here to there. It's the house that you live in. It's the clothes that you wear. And we need those things. But as soon as those things become your most important things, that's your God. But if you truly have the image of God stamped on you, say, I'm just going to give those things back. I'm going to give myself to God. He's going to reiterate this in a minute when he talks about the greatest commandments. The same day, the Sadducees, but they're all coming out. Do these guys have nothing better to do? Do they not have ministries of their own that they're trying to forward? Their only ministry right now is we got to take Jesus down because he's wrecking everything that we've got going on. They spend so much time trying to bring Jesus down that they aren't even paying attention to their own ministries. 
The same day the Sadducees who, were, who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, that's true. Just so you know, that is true. And that was the case so that the brother's name, his family name would go on if, his wife, if he died and he didn't have any children. His brother then was um, kind of committed to marry his brother's wife and produce a son. So then that son would actually be the son of his brother. So even though he helped produce the son, he was only the uncle because his son was the, the child was still the son of the brother who had passed away so that the name would be passed on. Now, it wasn't an obligation necessarily. You could go, if they, if they came to you and said, oh, your brother died, here's his wife. You're supposed to marry her and produce children with her, at least an heir. You could say, um, no, thank you. Um, but there was a process, and this is how it went. You would have to go before her and the court, and you would have to say, <laughs> you're laughing because you've heard this, um, you would have to say, I don't want to fulfill the requirement of um, marrying my brother's wife. So then you would take off your sandal and hand it to your wife. She would take it and spit in your face. <laughs> and then you were free to go on your way. You did not have to then marry your... Sounds like not such a bad deal, right? <laughs> but then you were known as the sandalless spit in your face guy, I guess. And, and good luck getting married after that. <laughs> But that was the process. So that was all real. What they're saying to him, that was actually real. So then they say, now, there were with us seven brothers. And the first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. So you understand what's happening. The guy marries this woman. He dies with no children, so his son marries her. He dies and has no children, so his, excuse me, his brother comes and marries her, so on and so forth. And this woman runs through seven brothers. And I'm wondering if anyone is questioning her at this point. She's gone through seven husbands. Somebody ought to be going and saying, let me check that coffee. There. <laughs> Therefore, in the resurrection, they say, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all had her. Okay, so first of all, you understand, it already said this. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe there is a resurrection. So it's a very strange question that they're asking. They're asking, like, in the thing that we don't believe exists at all, how will this happen? Don't you hear that, though, all the time, where people blame God, a God that they don't believe in? I don't believe in God. You know, where's God when this war breaks out? Oh, you mean the God that doesn't exist? That's the God you're asking where he's at? They're saying, in the resurrection that we don't believe in, what will happen if this man had, uh, if this woman had seven husbands, each a brother? Um, and it's not a fair question, really, is it? It's like we would ask, can God heat up a hot pocket so hot that even he couldn't eat it? It's the same question. It's could God do something even impossible for him to fulfill? If he can do all things and there's nothing he can't do, is there something he can do that he can't do? Jesus is not phased by this. And Jesus answered and he said to them, 
you are mistaken, not knowing the scripture nor the power of God. The words you are mistaken, it's not just like, oh, you guys don't understand this. You are mistaken, that phrase means you cause to wander or you lead astray. You see, they had become convinced of a strange doctrine and now they were teaching that strange doctrine to other people. And so he was saying, you and your strange doctrine are leading others astray from what the truth is because why? You don't know the scriptures. Do you know that I run into people regularly who think that they are so spiritual? They don't, they, they don't know the scriptures, but they think themselves are very super spiritual. They spend hours studying about spiritual things, but find almost no time for the Bible itself. They are biblically illiterate. One of the jobs that I look at here is to make sure that you all are biblically literate, that we stand on the word of God, that you know what it says so that if someone comes to you as you are warned in Hebrews, that you are not easily swayed away by strange doctrine. Strange doctrine. These men did not know the scripture, but they thought of themselves as super spiritual. They actually only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Only the first five books. So he says, you're mistaken. You lead people away because you do not know the scripture, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, this is the first issue that he addresses, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So one, of, one thing that gives us some insight into what heaven will be like is that there will not be marriage in heaven. Now, some of you are like, ah, oh, and some of you are like, really, really secretly. To... <laughs> No, no. Really what he's saying is that there will not be marriage in heaven like we have. Do you understand that God gave us marriage for a couple of reasons? But one of the main reasons is so that we as human beings would understand the heavenly realities of the relationship between us and God. In the Bible, we are called what? Of Christ. The bride of Christ. Now, if you're a dude, I know that's hard to like, get your mind around, but that's the reality. We are the bride of of Christ. And so he gave us earthly marriage so that we would understand. He gave us other earthly things as well so to help us understand heavenly things like parents and children. We understand better our relationship with God the Father because we have children. If my children are disobedient, I don't stop loving them. I might discipline them, but I don't stop loving them. That's to help me understand that even though I'm disobedient to God at times, he doesn't stop loving me. He might discipline me, but he doesn't stop loving me. But he says, you have marriage here for that reason and for other reasons. He says that we're supposed to uh, reproduce, be fruitful. And that only happens, according to the Bible, within the confines of marriage. But he says, once you're there, once you're in heaven, there's no marriage. There's no need for that anymore. And we're just like, oh, man, but... Oh, I'm not going to be married to my husband. I'm not going to be married to my wife. And here's the deal, right? You won't care. It's going to be heaven. We try to lay all of our emotional connection here to our lives 
to heaven, but see, in heaven, it will be different. There will not be sorrow. There will not be envy. There will not be, you know, judging one another. There's not going to be any of that. There's no pain. There's no crying. It will be amazing. And we can't even explain it. The Bible tries and tries, but we can't do it. And so I'm telling you that when you get to heaven and there is no marriage, you will not be disappointed. You won't care. And so Jesus says, guys, you don't understand the scriptures. And because of it, you're leading people away. When you get to heaven, there will not be marriage like you understand it here. And so the thing that you're asking me, the the challenge that you're putting forth, it won't exist. But he says, concerning the resurrection of the dead, which, um, again, they don't believe in. You have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And so what he does is he quotes to them from Exodus, one of the books that they actually believe is true. And he says that God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Not I was, meaning that they're still alive, not here on earth, but in heaven. And I am the God of them, he says. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. I'm sure they're just like, oh, 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 oh. good, he shut them down too. We're not the only fools out here in the courtyard. <laughs> then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You know, okay, so, you know, lawyer then, lawyer now, kind of different. The lawyer was a scribe, someone who wrote out the word of God, okay? So he knew the word of God. And in fact, the question is, which one is the greatest commandment, which is kind of a thing that they argued about all the time. They were always trying to figure out, everyone had an opinion about which is the greatest. And so this man comes in testing him and says, which is the greatest of the commandment in the law? So Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Again, quoting to them from Deuteronomy also, which is the Shema, the thing that was rolled up on the little paper attached to the door, which they still have today, that they would say every single day, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So he says, that's the greatest commandment. And then in anticipation of their next question, he says, and the second is like it. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So it's very interesting to me because when he says to them, he basically what he does is he takes the 10 commandments and he does this. And he says, the, the greatest one is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And basically what he says is, if you do that one thing, if you love God with everything that you have, you will fulfill the first four, ta- the first four commandments, the ones that have to do with you and God, man and God. If you love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you will um, bow only to him. You will not make idols and bow down to them. You will not use his name in vain. You will keep a day set aside to worship him. He's saying, if you love God with everything that you have, you will fulfill these four things, the things that have to do with with man's relationship with God. But then he says, here's the second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So what he does is he takes the second six commandments, the ones that have to do with our relationship with each other, and he says, if you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, you won't bear false witness against them. You won't be envious of what they have. You won't murder them. You won't steal from them. He's able to incorporate all the Ten Commandments into these two commandments, the ones that have to do with man and God and the ones that have to do with man to man. Now, what's really interesting is he uses, he says this, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. He uses the word hang right there. This is the same word that is written of that he would hang on a tree to be our redemption. That Jesus would be hung on a tree. It's the same word that Paul will use later to say, for our redemption, he would hang on a tree. Jesus says, all of these things that must be fulfilled, the God, man and God, man to man, um, all that that needs to be fulfilled was fulfilled through Jesus who hanged would hang on a tree. So he says, all of this is accomplished or is hung on these two things, which I've fulfilled by hanging on the cross. Man. I guess we'll just finish. We got a couple minutes. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, so they're thinking about this. They're like, huh. He just took everything and boiled it down to two commandments. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Christ means Messiah. So you're saying, who do you, whose son is the Messiah? And so, again, happy to be able to answer a question, they say, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's quoting Psalm 110. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? He basically says David recognized that the Messiah who would come wouldn't be just his son, but would be his Lord. And so Jesus says, how could he be just the son of David if David himself called him Lord? Because what they believed is that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but not necessarily um, divine. And Jesus is saying, no, he must be divine because David called him Lord, not son. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare to question him anymore. They no longer questioned him because they've been burned every single time. So what did they do instead? They secretly arrest him, try him, and kill him instead. And that's where we're going. That's where this is leading to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word this morning, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place today, that we would take this with us. Lord, the reminder that we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to sit and to partake of the wedding feast. Lord, I pray that there's no one here who's hoping, who's convinced that they will stand before God in their own garments, in their own righteousness, Lord, and argue their way in. Lord, as we see from Jesus' own words today, there is no way but through his own righteousness, through his blood that was shed for the remission of our sins, Lord. I thank you, Lord, I pray. Lord, if there's anyone here that has questions about this, Lord, or who has confused about it, that they would find me or someone here to talk to about this, that they wouldn't leave today, um, Lord, with 
their eternity in their hands, Lord, but that they would place it into yours. Thank you, Jesus. In your name.